0: What's up guys? I'm Kara Essar, and this is Difficult Content, an interview podcast about rating and creating for Final Fantasy XIV. Difficult Content asks tough questions but also celebrates the people who make the Final Fantasy community as unique as they are. With us today is Rinon, one of the best healers, VTubers, and guide makers this community has to offer. Rinon has been playing Final Fantasy XIV across many expansions with a host of prog accomplishments on their resume, including top 10 finishes for both Top and T, as well as top 15 placings for DSR, Abyssos, Eden's Verse, and Eden's Gate. This is the person whose guide taught you how to beat the P8S final boss. Rinon, thank you for coming on today.
1: Hey, how's it going? Hey, looking forward to it.
0: Cool. Are you ready?
1: Absolutely. Let's do it.
0: Healer main to another, I want to start off talking to you about healing in Final Fantasy 14. I first became a healer main back in Promise, so Endwalker's been the first expansion that I've healed every prog. You, however, have healer logs dating back to Gordius. In your opinion, what was the biggest change from one expansion to the next when it came to healing? Walk me through a quick healer retrospective from Heavensward to Stormblood to Shadowbringers to Endwalker.
1: Probably the largest change in terms of healer design was the way that the game paradigm shifted from giving you tons of DPS tools and kind of a fairly limited healing capability without expending GCDs. And then over time, they consistently changed it and scaled back on the complexity of damage dealing. And then they added a lot more ways that you could then heal every expansion in every single scenario without using GCDs. So if we use Scala, for example, which is my favorite job, because I think it's a pretty good example, actually. In Heaven's Ward, I was a white man. Mage main. But Scholar is probably the best example because Scholar had like five dots in Heaven's Ward, I think. You had Shadow Flare that you placed on the ground, you had Miasma, you had Bio, you had Bio 2, you had Arrow that you cross-class from White Mage that you also used for movement. You had a dot AoE, and all of these individual dots had completely different timers that you had to keep track of. And then on top of that, as a healer, in order to DPS, you needed to use cleric stance. And whenever you used cleric stance, you were completely completely. Completely locked out of healing for five seconds straight. So you needed to make an active decision that you could sacrifice the ability to protect the raid for those five seconds, right? Back then in Heavensward, it felt like there was a massive risk-reward to dealing damage, and you had to make a significant choice as to whether you wanted to do damage or to heal. And over time, I think that has changed quite a lot. I suppose on top of that as well, right, healers also had quite a higher burden of mitigation compared to most of the group, because the majority of the group back in Heavensward didn't really have that much to offer in terms of group mitigation. It was mostly on the healer, and the healer had less tools to to deal with any specific raid damage. Say, like, Scholar, which was the shield healer, right? You had spread low and soil and maybe illumination, and that was it. If that's not enough, well, tough luck, buddy, right? I also think that they used to design around heavy raid damages a lot more in Heavensward, whereas now they like to use raid damage plus something. They like to use like ray damage while moving or ray damage while the group is spread because they know that the players have more tools and the non-healer players have more tools to deal with things themselves so i think they kind of like to put the players in more interesting scenarios and try to make them deal with that whereas in Heavenswood, it was a much more what you see is what you get and a lot of the difficulty was based on dealing with the scenario with the limited tools that you had and also finding a way to deal damage as well this is a little bit of a tangent, but I also kind of think that fights back then probably didn't expect healers to deal significant damage to beat the enrages, whereas now they definitely do. I mean, like, you go back and try and do Abyssos while the healers are doing zero DPS, it's like, good luck with that, right? I think, honestly, Stormblood is probably my favorite expansion on the whole because it was really a sweet spot between the design philosophy they had then and the design philosophy they had now. Most healers had a couple of dots or something unique that would was interesting to think about while dealing damage, but they removed Cleric Stance as a stance and they kind of added it as a pure damage vamp. They also started making healers have a lot more powerful healing tools. They gave them extra off-globals like Benison, they gave them Xcog, Earthly Star, things like that. From that point onwards, healers have always kind of shifted further and further towards having powerful healing tools and further and further away from having interesting DPS rotations. I think that's kind of how healers have changed on the whole. And I think fight designs have gotten exponentially more complex as time has gone on, because the jobs have become more simple over time. I think not just healers, but all jobs have become more simple over time. And as a result, they feel that they can use player brain space a bit more, right? Any kind of brain space you were originally using to hit six bloody buffs in Heaven's Heavensward, you now have that space free so you can deal with an extra mechanic, right? I think that's what the devs think and what they expect of players nowadays. There's been plenty
0: of criticism about the healer role over the years, whether from that perspective of homogenization to the abundance of OGCD tools to the so-called one-button rotations. Do you think the healer roles in Final Fantasy XIV are currently in a bad place? And if so, why do you still primarily play healer?
1: The short answer is probably kind of and the long answer is more nuanced than that. I think that more and more over the years, me personally, I begin to think of healers as a prog job specifically because when you're in a scenario where you're still learning an encounter, you're still figuring out the timings, trying to understand how much mitigation you need and most importantly as a healer, trying to learn how many casts you can gain as damage GCDs and how much healing you can reduce. That part of healing is so, so interesting that I think it makes healer the most interesting job or role in the game in a prog scenario at least to me but because the rotations are now so simple and they're basically defunct, right? You, you press your dot every 30 seconds and then you one one one, one one and there's nothing more to it. The moment Prog is over, it feels like keeping playing them is almost a punishment for all the fun that you got to have in progression over the other people in the group. So I, I really enjoy the punishing nature of healing Prog, so I struggle to think of playing anything else in that environment. I would really like to see healers gain back a little more of their complexity. I think the Stormblood healer design was probably a bit of a sweet spot, and giving each healer just one additional damage mechanic which is unique to their job and gives them one more thing to think about would do a world of good because i know a bunch of people personally that used to play healer and they quit because they don't do blind prog and they can just check what other groups are using for mitigation and then suddenly the fun and interesting part of healing is gone and when you don't have to think about your mitigation or how to gain casts you might as well go play summoner right because summoner is more fun than doing that on healer It's interesting to hear
0: you talk about healing as a prog job, because I couldn't agree more. I spoke with Kareth about this a few weeks ago, because when you're first learning a fight, I can't think of a role that's more engaging. But when it comes to reclears or optimization, healer quickly becomes the most boring
1: role. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree 100%. I really enjoy playing healers in prog, and the moment prog is over, I want to play anything else. When I go pug, I don't heal, nothing like that. I want to go play tank, I want to go play DPS, because I feel like there's more to learn in a post-prog scenario on those jobs than there is on a healer.
0: What job is your favorite to take in the Party Finder?
1: Either Dragoon or Machinist. Machinist feels really good right now. It's quite an easy job to play, I think. It's very much a you can pick up and play. You've got free movement. You don't need to worry about uptime. So even if I've never gone in on a DPS before, I feel like I can instantly adapt to the DPS specific mechanics and timings and have an easy time with it. And Dragoon is just fun. I really like the two minute window on Dragoon. It's, It's really satisfying to do six million weaves in about 15 seconds. So I really like playing Dragoon as well.
0: Along those lines, which healer job and in which expansion was your all-time favorite? Give me the ideal Renon healer
1: time capsule. Scholar is my favorite job, and I think that Stormblood Scholar is the best iteration on Scholar for exactly one reason. There was a skill called Miasma 2, which was an AoE dot. But, back in Stormblood, it would also be part of your single target rotation. It was an instant cast, close combat, you had to be in melee range to hit with it. It was a 12 second dot, and it was a DPS gain on single target. And the catch of it was that it had a very high MP cost. I think it even had a higher MP cost than a sucker, I don't remember exactly right now. What was interesting about this is, other than that, you just had two dots to maintain. It's pretty simple, two dots and spam broil. But, my 2 gave you a risk reward that you don't really see very often anymore, because Every time you used it, you had to weigh up whether you can use Miasma 2 for more damage or whether you need enough mana for a potential res or a sucker or something like that later in the phase. So I really like the fact that as a scholar in Stormblood, you had to manage your mana mid fight. It wasn't just press Lucid on cooldown and don't think about it further because it felt really rewarding to figure out how many Miasma 2s you could use in a fight. Stormblood had some of the best raid design fights in the game, right? It had something like God Kefka, which is definitely no slouch in terms of healing requirement. So having to manage and figure out how many Miasma 2s you can get away with during an encounter that has a really high healing requirement was super fun. And I think that FF Fourteen needs more risk rewards on healers to make them have a good time. Going in the complete opposite
0: direction when it comes to MP management, you're an Omni Healer. You said that Scholar's your favorite job. What made you decide to prog top on Sage?
1: I started top prog on Scholar and I swapped to Sage somewhere around phase three prog when we were progging through final Omega. And honestly, the main reason was actually not a healing reason whatsoever, because I think that Scholar and Sage are actually both pretty good in top for different reasons. They both excel in different phases. I don't think either is particularly better than the other. The main reason that I swapped was because we were pushing P3 and top has some kind of weird phase timings that make some jobs honestly kind of pathetic on certain phases in terms of damage. And at the time we were Astro and Scholar, which was not ideal in terms of P2 damage. So I swapped to Sage because you get the two target Phlegmas on Omega F and Omega M in P2, which made the P2 check a lot more lenient for us so that we could then hold more damage going into P3 to try and reach P4 more effectively. The reason that I normally start on Scholar rather than Sage and then swap if if I feel like I want to, is because I think that Sage is the white mage of shield healers because it's an incredibly easy job to swap to and pick up and continue prog without wasting a pool. Scholar is kind of the opposite in that I feel that the majority of healing on Scholar, you need to usually use two or three cooldowns to deal with a specific scenario. You might say use Fey Illumination and Fey Blessing to give a heal and soil or something like that. Whereas on Sage, a lot of the time it's press one button and continue with your day. So I feel like it's easier to swap no. To sage than to swap to scholar. I also think that sage is very strong because it has so much freedom of movement while healing and while damaging, especially with the recent changes that came out just this patch, so that you get a toxicon stack every time you sucker, which is really, really, really good in top. You get so many free movement stacks. I never once had to think about obtaining a stack for movement ever. And Caracol is also disgustingly good in basically every encounter. So sage is always a swap potential because you can use a. Swap equivalent, on basically every raid damage in the fight at zero DPS loss. That's disgustingly strong. It's so good, so that's why we swapped to Sage at the end.
0: It definitely feels like Square Enix giving Sage the Toxicon stack from raid-wide GCD shields instead of only single-target GCD shields was specifically in anticipation of a Mega Ultimate. It's so outrageously useful in that fight.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think it was a really, really good change. A lot of the time on Sage in the past, you had to do some really janky stuff where you would be single-target shielding three people during a downtime to get your stacks back. I feel that also it removed a bit of the jank that a lot of As may have felt with Sage and made it flow a bit more naturally. And I suppose it makes sense as well that you get a stack back whenever you use a shield single target. Why wouldn't you get a stack back when you use an AOE shield? I think it was a good change. I think it was a good change. I think it made Sage a lot more fun to me.
0: Your team earned a top 10 finish for the Omega World race. Do you think top is interesting from a healing perspective compared to previous ultimates?
1: I've got pretty mixed opinions on the Omega Protocol in terms of healing. If we were to go on a phase-by-phase basis, I really like healing phase one, oddly enough, just because I think that the first mechanic in the fight with the blaster tethers and towers are unironically really fun to deal with as a healer because there are so many different ways you can approach it. You can either individually spot heal unique players, you can spot heal the threes and fours, which will end up with four individual people needing healing, or alternatively you can use AOE heals and then it's all followed by a mechanic that you're on average going to be stacking every mitigation you have for. I really like risk rewards. There's a risk reward between expending as little as possible at the start so that you have as much mitigation for the Pantocrator afterwards but while making the first mechanic as safe as possible. I thought that was really interesting to heal and then you get past P1 and it feels like there's a whole lot of nothing until phase four or maybe even phase five. Phase two and three honestly felt much easier than a savage to heal. Phase five has three very hard-hitting raid damages. But they're so far apart that you can essentially stack everyone's mitigation on all three without problem. So you don't really have to think about it. And there's essentially no healing other than that. It go, it just goes tank buster, raid damage. Tank buster, raid damage. Tank buster, raid damage. And the only exception to that is the first trio, which is Delta. Delta's quite interesting, but you don't really need to expend healer resources, usually a well-timed sucker or a Medica 2, and maybe using something like a neutral sect or a liturgy of the bell to make it a bit safer is just enough to deal with everything in the mechanic. Phase 6 is the classic ultimate final phase where it is a tight mitigation check rather than much of a raw healing check at all. But Phase 6 is really cool. I enjoy it for what it offers and how it punishes you because it's a very punishing phase. I think it's the tightest mitigation check in FF14 personally. At least as a save. I haven't done that phase on Scholar yet so I'm not 100% sure if it's super lenient on Scholar. Maybe it is because Spread Lose is very strong but I think the main issue that I have with healing ultimates in general are that even in a prog scenario, you get these massive periods of time, sometimes five or six minutes, where there is nothing to think about. It's either raid damage where you press every mitigation or you use an Indom or a sucker and nothing else. And there's no in-between for massive phase periods, including in tot. Maybe I'm just a masochist, but I would really love to see more interesting forms of player damage during these windows. I like multi-tank auto-attacks. I like tank swap busters. I like it when a de- dps player needs to be spot healed that's why i liked p1 so much in terms of healing because i like the you have to adjust on the fly and an unexpected player takes damage who needs to be dealt with and i think that things like that are really interesting needing to spot heal a player randomly is quite a tough thing to do so i think maybe it's a bit too high up for savage but for ultimate it would be a perfect fit right
0: Especially when our tools feel designed for that. Previous fights in the past two Savage tiers have had mechanics that force you to do that in both P4S and P8S. Having to haima one player, either a tank or a party member, and then use my Sage Tether on the other player and spot heal them as well. It felt weird to take a step back in this ultimate and not be forced to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And healers nowadays, they have so many single target tools that just get, ignored that you don't need to deal with so much. On Sage, I genuinely think that I could do all of top without pressing Krasis once. I think it's literally a a button that you don't need to press, and you should need to press all of your buttons. So I think that yeah, having more single target things to do throughout the fight would definitely make them more interesting to me personally.
0: One thing that's always felt weird to me is that while ultimate fights like DSR and top are more difficult mechanically, Week 1 Savage final bosses have always felt harder to actually heal due to the amount of optimization required to DPS checks. In top, as we discussed, a couple GCD shields here and there don't mean anything, but from my static at least, more than one in the PAS door boss week one was playing with fire. This seems strange to me on a conceptual level, since ultimates are supposed to be the more difficult challenges. Do you agree, and if so, why do you think this is the
1: case? I do agree with this, I 100% agree. Me and my group kind of have a little bit of a running joke where we think that Savage is actually harder than ultimate, because ultimate is a dance, right? Whereas. Savage always has a much tighter DPS check than ultimate has and usually it has a tighter healing check as well, especially since Shadowbringers, I feel that ultimates are really, really punishing and intricate mechanically. And they usually have a fairly lax DPS requirement to the point where if you don't die, you win. That's the rule in ultimate. If you don't die, that's enough. And usually there's only a couple of phases of tight healing. If we look back to Shadowbringers in T, I think Brute Justice and Cruise Chaser were kind of tight on the healing i think living liquid was maybe a little bit lower but living liquid also had relatively tight healing and then there was just nothing until you get to the end of alexander prime and then there's a very small healing check and then you're done for the whole fight there's nothing else and then you get to dsr and there are only a few phases once again where there's tight healing you go through phase five which is the return of thordon and you have these intense mechanics you have wrath of the heavens you have death of the heavens but there's no healing required really you may potentially have to mitigate a tank for a buster maybe use a sucker in a soil but Otherwise you're home free. All of your tools just come back off cooldown and they sit there back off cooldown waiting for the next phase. I think the same is true in top. Whereas when you go to Savage, savage mechanics are usually a lot simpler and they're a lot fast to solve mechanically i think that for the majority of world prog groups or even the majority of hardcore groups when you see a mechanic in savage and you see the mechanic go through to completion you normally know how to solve it almost immediately but they have much tighter checks in dps and sometimes in the healing department i think that the second phase of pas week one was harder to heal than anything in top, and it wasn't even close. Just dealing with the heavy dots, the crazy tank busters that hit two targets, the auto-attacks nearly chunking a tank if they didn't have cooldowns. That was way harder than anything in top in terms of healing. This is partly due to the fact that savages are intended to be out-geared in a few weeks. If the checks relaxed a little more to begin with, they'd fall over really easily by like, say week six, and as soon as players get more gear, I think that the devs would be worried that they would fall into a scenario that A12S had in Heavensward. In A12S, there was a very headline mechanic right at the end of the fight where you would spawn the wormhole puddles and you would need to drop bleed puddles around while dodging the wormholes and other mechanics. And there were stacks and spreads. And it was arguably one of the toughest mechanics in the fight. But as soon as you got an average group of average skill, even a PF that was in best in slot, you never saw that mechanic ever. And that was one of the headline mechanics of a final turn Savage. So I feel like the devs are very aware of that that and they always want to try and make sure that, especially in final turns, players have to deal with all of the headline mechanics. So they either shifted them forward in the fight, or they made it so that the DPS checks are a bit tighter to the point where you have to see every mechanic at the very least, unless you're speed killing or exceptionally good at damage. I do think that top kind of rectified this issue to an extent though, because the majority of the DPS checks in top are way tighter than the DPS checks in other ultimates. I don't think they're too tight. I kind of thought they were too tight day one or day two but as i've spent more time in the fight and we got more experience i think that it was more of a comfort thing than anything it was however the first ultimate where no deaths didn't guarantee you clearing a phase you had to tick one more box right so before in previous ultimates it was literally you don't die you press one two three and do your best and you probably clear the check but top added the additional checkbox requirement of you also have to be comfortable in the phase to ensure that you can play not perfectly optimally but kind of optimally. Especially as a healer, you needed to make sure that you optimized your casts quite a lot. A very good example is Phase 1. If you're not casting at all in Pantocrator, time to learn. Otherwise you're in trouble. You need to be able to greed your casts in Pantocrator to make sure that your group doesn't have to carry the damage, things like that. That said, I kind of like that there's two different styles of fight design. It's kind of nice to have a mixture. I'm one of the few people that think that Top was actually a really good fight on the whole. I don't think it's the best ultimate, but I quite liked the design. So I kind of hope that they bring back those tighter checks from top into future ultimates because I think they are a good thing on the whole.
0: As I said in the intro, you have a tremendous collection of prog accomplishments in the past two expansions, two ultimate top 10 finishes and a host of savage top 15s. What do you attribute to your success as a prog player, both individually and as a member of your statics?
1: The attitude that I have to raiding and the attitude that the rest of my group has to raiding as well is that we always think of ourselves as not good enough. We always think of ourselves as being in a position where we need to improve. I always go into a raid tier with the attitude of I want to learn and I want to learn from the other people in my group and I want to try and get to a point where we perform well enough. And I think that the most important thing that enables me to do that is that I'm quite blessed in that I've surrounded myself with people that bring out the best in me. And I think it's also very important that when you are making a group or when you are joining a group, especially to do hardcore prog, because that's a lot of hours to contribute to a video game, you need to make sure that you're around seven people that bring out the best in you. But also you have to accept that there is going to be a worst part of you as well. And it's the job of the other seven people in the group to make up for the worst part of you, both in terms of gameplay and in terms of you as a person. For example, let's say there's a guy who joins a group and he's a really good player. He's a really good shot caller. But if he wipes the raid, he gets tilted and he griefs for a bit in hardcore prog you love that guy when he's not wiping but when he tilts because he messed up a mechanic it's the job of the rest of the group to figure out how to untilt him and then you get him back at peak performance the moment you said what do you attribute to your success as a prog player I think it's not really about a prog player I think of it as a group right you have 8 people and the performance lives or dies based on the performance of all 8 people and not everybody is always going to be at their peak not everybody Everybody is always going to be at their best. Probably one of the hardest things in a group is trying to figure out how each person ticks and how to get the best out of them. I suppose, honestly as well, I just play the game a lot. <laughs> I don't consider myself the best player in the world or even the best player in any job that I play, but I play a lot and all of the time that I'm playing, I'm thinking about what I can do to improve. If I make a mistake, I don't think, okay, next time I need to dodge that AoE. I think, why did I mess that up? Was my thought process wrong? Was I slow? What was it? Because maybe there is a way that you can change the way that you're thinking about a certain thing to make sure that you're more efficient the next time. I'm always trying to, whenever I play, trying to think about how I can improve for the next time so that I can contribute as much as possible to my group for the next prog. Sticking with this, in your mind,
0: what separates a raider and even a good one from a world progger or hardcore progger? If someone's trying to make the jump from, say, week one clear to hardcore raider or hardcore hours to legit legitimate world racer what are the factors or skills or mentalities that someone can work on to make that jump
1: final fantasy 14 is not a game that has a high level of inherent talent required to be good at there are still some people that are inherently talented and are just very good at the game but it's definitely not a requirement to be a hardcore raider or even a world prog raider learning your job learning your role learning the way the game works gaining past experience all of that stuff is a requirement to be a decent player all of that experience is a requirement to be a good player but what makes you a special player that people remember isn't that you can do damage it's not that you can do the mechanics or clear the fight or get a 99th percentile on fflogs.com it's the intangibles that you bring to the raid when you finish progging with a group they won't remember that oh that guy did a lot of damage they'll remember when the group had a problem this guy fixed the problem and got us through being good at damage or being good at healing isn't good enough you need to bring more to the table are you good at call outs or are you good at strat formulation are you good at keeping the group morale high after a 16 hour raid are you good at dealing with disagreements within the group a successful group of eight people only to work together and as a good example sometimes you're going to be the fastest on a mechanic let's say you get to death of the heavens for the first time you have no idea how to deal with it and it just clicks for you and there's seven guys around you running around like headless ducks no idea what they're doing there's two ways you can deal with this right you can either go idiots and just mute yourself and wait for them to get it or you can be the guy that figures out how to help them click with it in a positive way and i think that players who get into a scenario where they need to do something like that they need to help the other members of the group with something be it a mechanic or a disagreement or anything like that the players that go the extra mile on the intangibles are the players that people remember they're the kind of players that everyone wants to have in their group the kind of guys who are selfless right sometimes times you're also going to be the worst at a mechanic, right? Everyone has been in the scenario where you're the only guy who doesn't get it, and it's the easiest thing in the world to get really angry about that. It's actually a skill to understand how to accept help without having an ego about it and to provide the other players in the group with the information they need on what you don't understand and how you can learn it the best. Because I guarantee you, even the world first groups, whenever they get to a mechanic, there's some guy who doesn't get it as quick as the others, and the onus is on them to help him get it. it It's not just wait for the idiot to learn. It's how do we get the group through this mechanic effectively? If you want to make a hardcore group, if you want to join a hardcore group, or even if you want to go for world first, you have to think of it as a team and think how can we most efficiently get through X, Y, or Z as a team? And what do these people bring to the table that will make the best team, not who can press buttons the best?
0: Do you and your teammates look back on your accomplishments from the past handful of progs to try to take stock of what you've achieved to date or do you guys have more of an on to the next one mentality
1: after progression the group that i'm in right now which is the group i was in for most of my progs but not all of them we always have a group meeting about two to three weeks after prog ends this is gonna sound really toxic okay but i promise you it's not toxic we're all in a discord call the players the ninth man everyone and we go through the list of players and we review them everybody makes it a goal to say one nice thing about everyone else in the group and one thing that they they think they can work on for next prog. So essentially what happens is everyone says something they appreciated about another person and they also say something that, okay, you could kind of do that better or that was a rough point for you, right? And then afterwards we do the same thing but as a group on the whole. I think it's actually really valuable because everyone on the group respects each other. We're all friends. We're not going to get angry when somebody says, you weren't very good at that, right? Nobody's going to get super angry about that. They'll just be like, yeah, yeah, I I wasn't very good at that. I'll do that better next time. Being able to speak candidly with each other is really important in terms of improving yourself as players and improving yourself as a group this is a little bit of a tangent but i actually watched a video by Zeno really recently and he was talking about the exact same thing he was talking about how he had an argument with everybody in his group before proc and if you don't know that you can have an argument with people in your group and reach a conclusion without people's egos getting in the way then there is a solid chance your group is going to have a very very bad time in proc because people don't know each other enough to be able to disagree and find the right response it. That's really important being able to speak candidly with everyone in your group. Our post prog reviews are really important because it gives everybody something to work on and it also gives everyone something to feel proud of. My personal feedback for top, at least from what I remember, the good feedback that I got was that we almost never died to damage. So that's good. The healers can press buttons. Hell yeah. And also that I'm good at keeping the team atmosphere fun and, and positive. And then the main improvement point that I took to work on for next prog was that when we get to the these big headline mechanics like delta trio where there are tons of moving parts it's a very complex mechanic i'm very good at iterating on an existing strat that we've built and figuring out a way to make it easier or improve it but i'm not very good at formulating the initial strat so i normally just sit there for 10 minutes and let three or four other people in the group formulate a strat and then i look at it and go why don't we change that or why don't we change that and i think that instead of taking such a back and not really participating in the initial construction of strats i want to be more helpful next time in terms of really trying to rack my brain and coming up with something initially that could be useful so that we have more people trying to contribute to that right everyone in the group got something like that basically from the other members and i think it not only helps us improve as players but it also helps us improve a bit of a bond between us
0: that's a fantastic idea i think i'm going to steal that from my static
1: we only started doing it this expansion beforehand we would usually just go well that was a fun proc on the next one but we started doing this after i think it was Asphodolos. we started doing this and it, it was really really useful people really liked it we do it every single progression it's also a good opportunity for us to big up our ninth man because i feel like the ninth men in any kind of hardcore raid group don't get the appreciation they deserve it's a two-hour meeting where we get to go and say wow you guys were so good thank you so much and they actually get to feel properly appreciated you know this group has been together a long time one of our current ninth man is the old static leader. He didn't have a real lifetime available anymore to keep raiding in like a hardcore capacity. So he was like, I'll be a ninth man for you guys. And it was really helpful. And then our other ninth man is the brother of one of our members. And he's also a decent player. He can't really put the timing to raid hardcore himself. And those people are are like literally essential to our ability to clear fights. When we got to phase six, the eight people playing we didn't think, we didn't do anything other than what we were told. Our ninth man told us everything to do. There's clear POVs out there of our clear and it was our ninth man doing all of the call outs for us I think in general ninth men deserve a lot more praise than they get in any group that has a ninth man they are literally just members of the group and a lot of people are like oh the eight members of the group at least in my case our group has ten members because we have two ninth men and that's just how it is That's
0: great to hear. Hardcore prog groups famously do some pretty wild things in order to prep for prog, since solved fights in Final Fantasy that you've done a hundred times, especially with gear creep rarely present enough of a challenge for prep. What kind of prep did your team do for Omega, and which challenges do you feel actually helped you guys the most?
1: We did two things to prepare for Omega. First of all, we did a DSR clear every week until basically Omega came out. I would say that that was elite prep, but it wasn't really. We just wanted to get all of our DSR weapons, but it definitely kept everyone in shape of dealing with ultimate tier mechanics every single week. Because I think a lot of the time, what a lot of people do is they clear the fight, they'll do like three or four reclears, they don't go back in, they don't bother, and then you get back to ultimate and you're like, wow, this is pretty quick compared to Savage Dam, because you haven't been in for two or three months. So we made sure to constantly be in DSR almost up until Omega came out. But the other thing we did is there is a spreadsheet that shows you the minimum gear that you can wear that will allow you to do the Sync to Omega raids and get the quote-unquote authentic minimum item level experience. I would argue it's probably harder than the actual authentic minimum item level experience. Either that or I was a better player in Stormblood than I am now because the healing is harder than it was back then for sure. We did all of those in encounters using that gear and it was not only really fun because one of our players was not playing the game back in Stormblood so the fights were all new to them. It was really fun to see their reactions and how they learned the mechanics and how they understood the mechanics but it was also really useful to do a piece of hard content that required you to heal a lot because your gear was so low that it was harder to heal than the actual game should be. On the whole though I don't think we prepare too much for progression at least compared to other groups. At our core we're kind of a group of friends nowadays. So we have a couple of people that very actively play the game, we have a couple of people that just raid log. Usually we trust people just to do their own due diligence and just aim to get everyone together once or twice a week to make sure they're playing the game, and then maybe two weeks or so before Prog we'll do maybe three or four days or something like that. Don't think that we did too much practice though aside from the Omega gear sync stuff and that was just really fun on the whole.
0: Let's talk about content creation, One of the reasons I got very excited about having you on is because I think your guides capture both an immediacy and clarity that a lot of guide makers would be envious of. Given how fast you clear these fights, you have both the resume to be authoritative and the time to produce and release them on a terrifically rapid timeline. A quick look at your YouTube page includes guides for every new fight and phase, an entire series of Final Fantasy XIV tips and tricks, and also a full healer academy for beginner players, all on top of streaming. What made you first want to take the leap from just uploading clear POVs to making videos?
1: The real answer to this is that at various points in Shadowbringers, I didn't do any content creation. I only streamed to show my raid POV so that I had the footage if I wanted it. Throughout Shadowbringers, I was in two groups with a couple of streamers, Starl, Zeno, and Arthurs. I thought what they did was really cool. I don't think I've ever said this to any of them, actually, but seeing how fun it was to watch their streams, because I usually used to watch their streams after or before Raid, made me want to create stuff of my own, so I gave it a go. At the time, I didn't really feel confident enough to attempt to entertain people or to stream or anything like that. I have a very mute personality, like I'm quite a chill, relaxed person, so I don't think I'm big and loud and out there on stream. So I didn't think I had the personality to stream. So instead, I scripted and wrote videos and guides that I think I would have found useful when I started playing Final Fantasy 14. During Heavensward, when I started playing the game, there was almost no resources out there that would teach you to be a good player The only guides out there were for content, and they were by Mistech and Mr. Happy, which are obviously still very prolific guide makers now. The balance didn't exist. Any kind of aggregated server where there were job resources or fight resources or gameplay tips, they just didn't exist. While they do now, I think there are much better resources available now than there used to be. I felt like at least I had something small that I could maybe contribute to healing, just in terms of maybe putting down the things that I've learned over the years that I found useful that I didn't think of myself. Maybe I could show other people that were in my position five years later or something.
0: I often struggle with whether or not I want to be on camera for either streaming or YouTube videos. I know the clear benefits with the audience interaction, but I also have some pretty serious hesitations. In my mind, being a VTuber is in some ways the perfect middle ground, giving the audience the benefit of engagement and interaction while still providing the security of no camera. What made you take the plunge and become a VTuber?
1: When I started streaming initially, I always heard the same advice. It was everywhere. Every article that I found that was how to be a good streamer, youtube.com, google.com, I think the first advice that I always saw was that you cannot succeed unless you stream with facecam. First thing I want to say about that is that, pardon my French, but that advice is bullshit but it's founded in something that is kind of true. I first got Twitch Partner from streaming with no face, no VTuber, no avatar, no nothing like that, because partially laziness, I won't lie to you, but partially because I realized that people are there to hang out with the streamer or to watch them play the game. Sometimes people are there for the personality. Sometimes people are there for the gameplay. Sometimes they're there for both. One or the other at the very least. Everything else is really superfluous in comparison. That said, it can be really tough to convince emotions or personality for hours on end while you're streaming with only your voice. So having some kind of face that viewers can put to the voice helps to give you more of a personality to the viewer, at least I think so. I didn't really like the idea of being on camera because it means that for every stream, especially prog, sometimes I stream 16 hour days for 11 days straight. And I'm not going to lie to you, I don't look the best nine days into prog and I don't really want to show that on camera. (laughs) Every stream i Felt like I need to be looking my best I felt like I need to be conveying emotions I need to have good lighting for it to not look awful, things like that whereas with a VTuber you literally you plug your phone into your PC you achieve a similar effect, you can swap between different emotions, it was very simple to do and it kind of aligned quite well with Prog. it meant that I could do what I needed to do in Prog. so I decided to give it a go luckily I know that VTubers are quite famously incredibly bloody expensive to do but my girlfriend was very kind and did almost all of it completely for free for me so I just gave it a go and it was a lot of fun so I stuck with it.
0: Looking at your tweets from December you gained over 700 subscribers and over 300,000 total views on YouTube as well as 1,900 subscribers and 3,700 followers on Twitch all in just the last year. Has it fully sunk in yet what you were able to accomplish in 2022?
1: I'll admit I'm one of those really annoying people that only really kind of looks back on what you failed rather than what you achieved. I'm Really proud of what I achieved on Twitch last year because I only started really streaming on Twitch right at the end of 2021. Essentially, whatever kind of following I have, whatever kind of community I have, I grew in basically a year. I got like Twitch partner last year as well. I was really proud of that. But the only thing I could think of the whole time was, yeah, Twitch is great and all, but I've basically left my YouTube channel to rot for six months. And I felt really guilty about that. Any kind of Twitch growth I had came at the cost of my YouTube channel. Over the past three or four months at the end of 2022, I was able to kind of bring it back to life. I was able to work on it a bit more actively again, and find a bit more of a middle ground between the two. Because once I started streaming, I learned that it's actually really fun. So I really like streaming, but I also really like making videos. There's just not enough time to do everything that I want to do. It's kind of tough, honestly, to be able to balance between multiple platforms and make so much content for both. For the people that can do it, I'm taking Taking tips, I would love some advice. It's really impressive what you do, holy shit. But yeah, basically I was really proud of what I achieved on Twitch. I hope that I can do better on my YouTube again going forward.
0: Let's talk about YouTube then. In September, you released your most successful video to date. Your P8S final boss guide became the definitive guide to learning the fight, both for statics such as mine, because you released it before week one was even finished, and for PFers worldwide. At the time of recording, it has almost 190,000 views, and as someone pushing for partner myself, I don't even want to know the amount of watch hours and subscribers. Did you know when you made this guide that it was going to have that type of impact?
1: 100% no. In EU, I have a friend that is also a content creator. And whenever I make a guide, I'm always a little bit nervous of becoming him. This might sound disparaging, but it's not at all. Back in Shadowbringers, Shiva was the current raid tier for Eden's Verse. And Ilya made a video on EAS. He made the video late week one. He released a not damage optimal, but very safe and easy Light Rampant Strat. And I think it spent the next eight months with everybody in PF, every stream, every podcast talking as much smack about it as they humanly could. It was an awful strat. He's an idiot, all this. Whenever I have ever released a strat, I've been terrified of that happening to me. I feel bad as well, just to go on a tangent, because the Light Rampant Strat was fit for purpose. It was a really easy strat that PF could do. It was super brain dead. It was kind of hard to mess up. People still found a way, but it was kind of hard to mess up he got a lot of flack for it i don't think it was deserved but when this video came popular when the pas guide became popular i was honestly more worried than anything else because i was like i hope the strats are good enough (laughs) i hope the strats are okay luckily i've not really had much of that at all i was quite blessed in that i feel like on the whole i'm quite good at breaking down mechanics into simple steps we have this kind of in joke in our static that me and one of the other members we have the same brain because we both have stupid brain because whenever we are resolving a mechanic and figuring out the best way to deal with a mechanic i will always go okay now i'm gonna write this into five idiot proof bullet points and then we're gonna pull if i don't have those idiot proof bullet points i'll probably mess up the mechanic but if i have them i will absolutely one-shot them where my guides lack is kind of in the visualization so going forwards i'm kind of hoping to develop a system that i can add a bit more of the moving strat images the animations that make it a bit easier for people that are more visual to learn, but I think that on the whole, my guides kind of target players that are aiming for a week two to a week four clip, because those players usually understand the concept of the mechanic, but all they need is just that little push of information to help get them through the final line. I feel like specifically, as somebody who spent an entire expansion being in that position myself, I think it's very important that I get information out to people quickly, that they can use it as soon as possible.
0: Even with your guide's success, a month and a half after the release, you tweeted that you felt really down on your content and were struggling to break out of what you called a slump? Did you feel pressured to follow up on the success of that video? Were you struggling creatively with what to make once the tier was conquered? Or was something else casting a shadow over your success?
1: I think it was a few things actually. Number one, it was a mixture of burnout on Final Fantasy XIV and burnout on content creation. The difficult thing about hardcore raiding on Final Fantasy XIV is that you might spend, in the case of Abyssos, I think we spent maybe 45 to 50 hours progging that in three days in order to kill it it was probably about 40 to 45 hours actually that's a lot of time to dedicate to something and whenever i finished prog it doesn't end the way it ends for prog players because then i start content creation prog right we cleared about 4 or 5 p.m something like that and i stayed up to 2 a.m that night working on the video i went straight into it i didn't even take an hour off so my prog actually ended on like the saturday instead of on the thursday when i think we cleared And that's a lot of time to dedicate to something in a short space of time. And after that's done, I don't want to look at Final Fantasy 14. I don't want to look at how the video's doing. I just don't want to look at it for like three or four days straight at the very, very least. Sometimes longer based on how bad the burnout is. I think that was part of it. I also think that there is a big difference between creating guide content and creating personality-driven content. And I really like making guide content to a certain point. And there gets a point where I need to have a break from it for a little while. And I want to make personality-driven content. But the issue with that is those both fulfill very different niches and attract very different people. And if you, say, have a very successful guide piece of content that gets like 100k views or something, and then you release a piece of personality-driven content as a small content creator that will get 1k views, 2k views, it's difficult to not let it feel bad. And that was very much the case for me after we finished Prog, after I'd finished making the guides for the fight. I wanted to take a bit of a break from that. I made some other styles of videos. Obviously, they didn't do as well as the guide. I expected that. But it's very tough to see something not 100% succeed and go, this is fine, I don't care. Because as much as you'd like to not care, you kind of do care.
0: (laughs) For me, these interviews are incredibly fulfilling creatively. But similar to what you said about guides versus personality-driven content, this podcast always noticeably underperforms versus my standard videos. It can be discouraging because while these interviews are an endless source of inspiration, for me, as I genuinely find each person I talk with incredibly interesting, creating a non-interview video from scratch can be difficult to find inspiration for, especially during content down periods. What is the biggest thing right now you're struggling with creatively, and how do you overcome these type of creative obstacles?
1: There are two types of video that I really like making. I really like making guide videos, and I really like making storytelling videos that tell you the story of an experience. experience. I made quite a long 20 minute video on Heaven on High. I went for the solo Heaven on High title, The Lone Hero, and I got it on stream and I downloaded however much footage it was. It was probably a lot, like 30 hours of footage. I went through all of that footage. I cut out all the interesting parts and I made a script telling the story of the experience that not just me, but the entire stream had with it. And I worked really hard on that. And that's to this day, absolutely the video that I'm most proud of, because I I think it was a really good video, but obviously it didn't do very well. Say you have 3,000 subs on YouTube and 2,500 of them come from making guides. It's not going to perform very well unless you get very lucky and hit the algorithm. And that's natural, right? I was kind of expecting that. But it definitely hurts to have something that is kind of a passion project flop in a way. I think the way that so far I've dealt with it is that I really try to split the two up in my head and think, of these storytelling videos that I make as a passion project that is along the side. I make no fixed schedule for producing them. I just have fun writing it and editing it and putting it together. If it takes two months to make, if it takes three months to make, it is what it is. I don't care. People can wait for it. And then the content that is much less, I suppose, evergreen. It's much more content that is time-specific and based on a specific fight or a specific raid tier. Obviously those I try to do as quickly as possible, but with videos that that are more of a passion project. I try to enjoy the creation process more than try to make the creation and then hope it does well. Because if I enjoyed creating it and it got 50 views, it is what it is, I still had my fun.
0: It's definitely still worth it at that point yeah so how do you come up with the idea for a guide or personality based content on either twitch or youtube and what steps do you go through to make it a reality talk to me about your process
1: regarding youtube i have a private discord server that i make notes in every day i probably have like five thousand notes in there at this point i have it all split into different channels stuff like that so it's all very organized but also chaos at the same time if i think of a good idea i make a note for it if there's a new patch coming out i'll read the patch notes i'll make bullet points of any any potential videos that I think are interesting, any guides that I feel like I should make. And then I leave them on the burner and I don't do anything with them for at least 24 hours. And I come back and look at them the next day and I delete the ones that were stupid ideas because there's always some that were stupid ideas. I recently, for example, experimented a little bit with taking stream highlights and editing them down to be a good fit for YouTube. I wanted to try it out and I like those videos and they're fun, but I mentioned before that my dream is to make these big 20, 30 minute deep dives of experiences alongside guide videos. And basically the way that I make videos right now is I usually have one of those experience videos on the back burner that I'm working on. And then I have the discord channel with the bullet points in and I'll pick and choose from that and just work. Work on a video at my leisure, essentially. I used to schedule videos, but I think that's not so healthy for your mental health if you feel like you're behind on a video and then you start feeling guilty and then you procrastinate. I kind of cut that. Now they just come out when they come out and people have to deal with it, and I think that's probably the best thing on the whole.
0: Finally, talk to me about streaming non Final Fantasy 14 games and any difficulties or benefits that doing variety streaming presents.
1: I think there is a bit of a difficulty with it. If you are somebody who plays any game for 90%, of your time as a streamer specifically, people see you as an FF14 streamer. And that means that people come to your stream and they expect to see FF14. There is going to be usually a fairly small percentage of those viewers that expect FF14 and want FF14 that are going to tune in for other things. I definitely had that experience as well. When I play other games on stream, I get maybe like probably a quarter of the usual viewership. I kind of accept that though, because at the end of the day, you can't only play FF14 all day, every day. That's one way to get burnt out really quickly. And I enjoy playing other games, and I think I really am appreciative for the people in my community that come along and just chat a little bit while I play other games. It is difficult, though. You have to accept the losses as a content creator that that's going to happen. But I think that it's a very healthy long-term thing, because even if every stream you get one viewer who comes from that other game and is interested in watching you play games, any games... Over time, you're going to have built up this community of people that just wants to watch you play games, just wants to chat with you while you play games. And I think that that's healthier both for a content creator's mental health, and I feel like it's healthier in terms of Final Fantasy explodes two years from now, and then everybody who relies solely on Final Fantasy 14 and does it for a job is now out of a job. You need to have a backup plan, and I think that variety is the safest backup plan there is. I wanna learn a little
0: about the person behind the player. What originally made you start playing Final Fantasy 14?
1: I actually started playing Final Fantasy 14 in A Realm Reborn. I quit the game at level 47. So the reason I started playing the game is I had this IRL friend and they played a lot of MMOs. I had never touched an MMO in my life. And he told me that as a console exclusive player, which is what I was, I only played basically PlayStation games and Xbox games. He said, there's an MMORPG that you can play on console and I need a player for my second coil static and I was like I have no idea what those words are but I'll give it a go he even bought me the game I played for like two or three weeks I got to level 47 I had a lot of fun with it and I spoke to that same friend about his second coil static I asked how close I was he was like ah I'm actually taking a break from the game we're not doing that anymore so I quit it must have been nine to twelve months later something like that when Heaven's Order was just releasing I had some online friends and we wanted to find something to do together and I remembered that Final Fantasy 14 was a thing that I'd had fun with so we decided to give Final Fantasy 14 a go I created a new character and everything and I have almost consistently been sub to the game ever since seven plus years now at the very least it clicked more the second time I think it clicked more the second time I know that a lot of people have had a similar experience where they played the game a little bit back in a realm reborn it didn't quite click they gave it another go later and then they were hooked i had that exact same experience
0: i also had that same experience it's too funny to hear you say that you quit at level 47 <laughs> so i started playing on playstation 3 in 2014 and i know because i can go back and check the trophies that i didn't beat praetorium until 2018 the first enemy killed trophy to defeated praetorium is a four-year gap <laughs> i thought the game oh was my. really, really <laughs> weird And I hated the original (laughs) voice actors. I hated them. But I guess as a Final Fantasy fanboy, I couldn't stay away forever.
1: Yeah, I had the exact same experience. I even started on PlayStation 3 as well. I had the exact same thing. (laughs) I I remember for some reason, I was like, I'm going to get every trophy in this game when I started playing in Heaven's Ward, And some of the trophies are for completing a thousand leaf quests. So I had these... stupid muffins for a level 20 leave quest in my inventory for a year. And every day I would go and turn them in so I could get my bloody gold trophy or whatever it was at the end of the year. It was so messed
0: up. So I'm not sure if you count that initial experience, but what got you interested in raiding?
1: I was always kind of interested in raiding. I like being good at the things that I do. I don't like being bad at things. It really frustrates me. I accept that when you start something new, you're going to be bad, but I try and get out of that position as quickly as I can. So when I learned that there was a raiding scene in Final Fantasy fourteen and that there was kind of this step ladder that you take to getting better at the game, you tackle extreme primals and then you tackle Savage and then eventually in Stormblood, they released Ultimate. I was like, okay, I need to be somebody who can do Savage or well, there's no point playing the game. I'm not good enough then. That's the way my my brain thought. I don't really think that's a correct way of thinking, but that's how my brain thought. I got to level 60 at the start of Heaven's Ward. I got my base tombstone gear and I decided to do the only thing that I thought possible. I went into Duty Finder. I queued for Bismarck Extreme, which was, according to every Google search, the recommended first Extreme Primal because Ravana is harder. I queued into Bismarck Extreme. I got flamed out of Bismarck Extreme and I closed the (laughs) game for like two weeks. But I came back like a few weeks later. I eventually got to clear Bismarck and Ravana. Thordan is the piece of content that made me really love raiding. A couple of people in my FC and me, we had no statics or anything like that. We decided to make a group and try to party finder the other four or so people we need. And this party finder raided every day for like three hours until the Monday before the first reset after Thordan released. It took us six days of prog to kill Thordan Extreme and eventually we did kill Thorden Extreme. and those four party finder people on that tuesday they stayed with us every day we progged the whole fight together we were like a pseudo static and i was so proud when we beat and extreme because i remember everybody said that this fight oh this fight's really hard this is a really hard extreme fight why is this so hard for an extreme fight and i thought wow like we did it we actually cleared this piece of content maybe we aren't awful then i eventually over time started progressing into savage i was really bad back then i didn't clear gordius on content i went into midas finally actually cleared a piece of content on content came to creator went up to like a four or five evening a week group and i stayed there for a long long time before the end of stormblood when i joined my first hardcore group i was always really interested in raiding and i always eventually wanted to be one of the better raiders in the game it took me quite a while i think to get there
0: So this is me dating myself, but my very first Extreme fight was actually Ruby Weapon.
1: Oh, heck.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I too was terrible, Greys all around, but I worked on grinding out Ruby Weapon again and again and again and again. And I think I ended up getting like a 92 without any raid gear. So I thought that was- That's it. actually really good. Yeah. I thought That That's was a really good for your enough. first Extreme. <laughs> I felt accomplished enough to then go get Greys and Savage. But luckily, uh, <laughs> Verse existed for like a year and a half it felt like. So there's plenty of makeup time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite fight in Final Fantasy XIV of all time?
1: My favorite fight in Final Fantasy XIV is the Epic of Alexander and it's not really because of the fight itself because in some ways I kind of hate the fight. I hate Codex. I hope we don't have to talk about Codex. I've complained about Codex enough. It was stupid. But the reason that I love that fight so much is because of the memories I have associated with it. It was my first time hardcore progging and ultimate ever it was also my best ultimate placement in a world race ever i had a really good time by the end of t-prog i was probably twice the player that i was going into t-prog i learned so much wormhole was such a nightmare that i felt proud of myself overcoming it that mechanic was a wall in blind prog it was a nightmare of a mechanic for the time so many moving parts that it was just hard to deal with and then there was the codex wall and then perfect alexander was like such a good final phase it was such a really really good fun final phase it felt very epic and it felt fitting in a way because i started playing the game when alexander was the current raid tier. so having all of those experiences of doing hardcore and doing world prog and ending up doing well on the ultimate that was a recreation of the tier that I started playing felt really, really good. It was like a big, perfect, circular storytelling moment. I really, it was just good. It was really good. I really like T. T will always be my favorite ultimate and my favorite fight, no matter how good the future fights are. It's like impossible to top it.
0: T is also my favorite fight and nostalgia plays a massive part in that as well. It was my first ultimate. I should not have been accepted into that static and I probably should have been kicked by my limit cut performance alone. (laughs) But (laughs) ultimates have a way of of making you grow as a player. And by the time we were even like through BJCC, I was completely different. By the time we cleared, it absolutely transformed my Final Fantasy experience. And I'll always think back fondly on seeing someone with a T-Weapon and just being like, I need one of those.
1: Yeah, it felt really good. I know that maybe not so much nowadays, now that it's off expansion and you have kind of gear scaling to make T a lot easier to do in terms of DPS check and healing check. But it felt like the first step of ultimates becoming way, way harder than they were. Ucob and Ubu were both hard on content, but T felt like a step up. And to the people in my group, all of those people, they hardcore prog as well. I think they got fourth or something on Ubu. So obviously they had the experience of actually doing... Uwu week one and two, as well. And they were also shocked at wow, this tea is way harder than Uwu, is what they said. It felt like such an achievement as well because T is such a good fight with such a good story and it was also so difficult that it felt like such a big achievement to beat that fight.
0: What's your favorite thing to do in the game that isn't raiding?
1: I'm gonna be outed as a faker for saying this but I really like fishing. I'm just really casual at fishing. Fishing is unironically really fun. I still haven't completed my fishing log. I'm no world-class troller. I don't have the big fish title. I'm like a turbo casual fisher but whenever I'm really stressed out and I don't want to do something but I want to log into FF14 I will without fail log in and go catch like one or two big fish and just go throw the rod out for like 20 minutes I think it kind of stems back that when I was a kid I used to go fishing with my granddad a lot we used to go like once or twice every month so fishing is like a comfort thing for me I don't go fishing anymore in real life so I go fishing in FF14 instead yeah mount farming used
0: to be that activity for me me, but not so much anymore. Maybe I need to try fishing.
1: Fishing's good. Fishing's good. You should do some fishing. What's your
0: favorite game or genre outside of Final Fantasy
1: 14? I don't play too many games outside of FF 14 anymore. I used to play a lot of games, but not so much now. I kind of try and do things other than gaming when I'm not playing FF 14. I'll play a few games, but not too many. To say my favorite game, this is an old one because I'm a boomer, but my favorite game ever is Metal Gear Solid 3, and I'm really sad that they're never going. To make another one because Kojima is making his weird Death Stranding games now. Sometimes, when I'm feeling really low, I will find a way to play that game and I will play it again and I will feel like I'm 10 years old again and it will make everything right in the world. Outside of gaming then, what do you do for fun? I like cooking. I'm not the best chef in the world or anything like that, but I I really enjoy cooking. I really enjoy reading. I recently kind of rediscovered my love for reading. When I was a child and a teenager, I used to read incessantly all the time. And when I was an adult, I got a bit too busy to do it. My partner bought me a Kindle last year. And ever since, I probably read like three or four books a month. It's really good because I know technically Kindles are a screen, but it's not really the same kind of screen, it's nice to get away from the computer for an extended period of time and go and do something else. I read a lot of books, I read horror books, I read biographies, I read basically everything that I can get my hands on, I really enjoy it. I want to talk to you briefly
0: about your controller setup and UI because I find these little expressions of personality interesting. I too play on controller and when mapping out my skills for a new job, I always try to put my GCDs on the face buttons and my OGCDs on the D-pad, regardless of the left or right modifiers. You, however, have your Toxicon on your D-pad. How on earth do you move effectively with the left stick while also using those skills with your left thumb? Is it some form of claw grip?
1: When I was a teenager, I used to play a lot of console shooters. I know I'm one of those kinds of people. And in order to be good at those games, a lot of the time, you had to use claw grip. So I'm really comfortable using crab hands. And whenever I need to do movement and press one of those skills at the same time, I essentially channel my inner 14-year-old so that I can claw again and just swap my hands to do that, essentially.
0: And I'm gonna keep going on this, but you seem to prioritize your right modifier, putting your most used skills on the right side of both set one and set two. Most of your button presses during a fight are going to be using the right modifier then. So I, however, try to prioritize set one. So most of my buttons are on the first set and switching to set two is the uncommon move for me, as opposed to how using the left modifier would be more uncommon for you. Was this a conscious decision or am I just an absolute nerd for noticing? (laughs)
1: I was actually really surprised that you noticed. When I started learning the game, I had a few different jobs leveled, and I wanted to instill a set of rules that were common across all jobs so I could remember where the buttons were more recently. So, for my healers, I have a healing set, and I have a DPS set, which is really redundant now, because healers have, like, two DPS skills. But I still follow that rule, where on set one, on the right side is the basic healing moves, and for non-healers, on set one, on the right side is the basic combo buttons always and then on the left side it is the healing moves that i couldn't fit on the right side but i use a lot usually gcds or off globals with a short cooldown and for tanks that's where most of my mitigation cooldowns are for personal mitigation Everything that is like 60 seconds or below, I attempt to put on the left side on set one. And then you go over to set two. And on the right side, I always attempt to put raid mitigation and AoE skills and things like that. And for healers, I put my DPS skills there, unless there's like a random space that I just fill at some point because a new skill gets released on a new expansion. And then on the left side on set two is all of the mitigations or cooldowns or things like that that don't pop up more often. So for example, the two minute buffs on a DPS will usually go on set two on the left, whereas the AoE combo will go on set two on the right. I suppose the only exception to that is Dragon Sight on Dragoon, because I use macros to be able to target people more easily. So I have like four buttons for it for the four potential targets, which is very fun. Because I'm a psychopath, even though I still have three buttons on set two, I always put limit break and arm's length on set three for some reason. I don't really know why. I have to swap between three sets while playing almost every fight for literally no reason
0: getting that third set is complicated I try to avoid it some jobs you can some jobs you can't when I was first learning jobs I specifically targeted jobs like machinist or white mage that you could fit everything you needed on those two sets just out of sheer yeah
1: yeah. I used to almost exclusively play jobs that I could fit onto two sets. And as I started leveling more jobs, I realized, especially back in Heavensward, where some jobs have 30 plus buttons, it was just not really realistically possible. So I ended up, I kind of expanded my brain and learned to <laughs> use the third set of it.
0: Watching Violent Destruction play Astro on controller sometimes just blows my mind with how he cycles through all of that. Sage, specific question for you. You have your Eucrasia modifier on both set one and set two. Why'd you double it? Up.
1: you're craziest on both set 1 and set 2 because the very anal rule is that I use it both while DPSing and while healing so it goes <laughs> on the awesome. DPS hotbar and the healing hotbar that's fantastic
0: Another thing I noticed is that your party list is up in the upper left-hand corner in almost a near default position. I keep mine centered vertically and then just left enough. And I've seen a lot of healers kind of keep it where I have it or invert it and keep it centered vertically, but on the right-hand side. Do you find it difficult at all to see your party list with it in the corner?
1: I think that my party list placement is pretty suboptimal. The problem is I got so used to it that I think it would be harder to swap than just to keep it as it is. Sometimes it's... It's a little bit jank, but because I've been playing the game for such a long time, I feel like I would need to regain the muscle memory on where they were if I were to move them into a more optimal position. So I just kind of keep them where they are, and I think that's the case for a lot of things on my UI in general.
0: A lot of times, I feel like elements of the Final Fantasy XIV community are so focused on weird drama and toxicity, or spreading obviously fake positivity, that it's easy to lose sight of the good that does exist. To counter this, I like to get guests to say something genuinely positive about five different people including themselves. Starting off, and you are definitely one of a handful of these for me, name a Final Fantasy XIV player who you admire or who drives you to be a
1: better player yourself. I really hope this isn't a cop out answer because it's neither just one player nor a content creator but the other people in my group i want to be the best player i can because i want to be more useful to the other seven people in my group to the rest of my friends and i feel like we all share the same attitude and i'm safe and secure in the fact that they also have the same mentality towards me and towards the other people in the group also honestly they're like way better than me so thanks for the carries you idiots (laughs)
0: Here's a Final Fantasy XIV creator who you think is super talented. And it doesn't have to be streaming or YouTube content either. It can be art, music, emotes, house decorating or anything.
1: Honestly, Zeno, because I have no idea how he manages to put out so much consistent streaming content, so much consistent YouTube content. And he manages to be insanely funny all at the same time. He's like a content machine. It's really impressive, to be honest. I'm always like, how did he manage to make six videos during during a day of 16 hour prom. How did he do that? Why is he like this? It's really impressive. I can't. Like, it's. I continue to be impressed by how much of a content machine that Zeno is.
0: And he's always been one of the bigger Final Fantasy 14 creators, but I feel like in the last year, maybe two years, his growth has st- Still been exponential.
1: He's definitely continued to blow up almost every year. It's crazy. I suppose rightly so as well. Though he makes so much good content, makes sense.
0: Who's someone outside of Final Fantasy, either on Twitch, YouTube, a band, an artist, who you're really into right now and deserves a shout
1: out? This is nothing to do with video games in general, but there's this YouTuber that I watch all the time called Mav. He makes travel videos and camping videos, all of the things that I basically don't do because I don't. don't really go traveling. I don't really go camping. But he owns these vehicles. Like, he owns a camper van. He owns a Japanese camper van. And he just drives around and camps places in his car. And there's something very cathartic about sitting there for 20 minutes, turning your brain off and watching a guy cook ramen in his truck. And I don't know what it is, but it soothes my soul.
0: <laughs> my version of that would be Peter McKinnon. I'm not a photographer. I don't even own a camera outside of my phone, but watching his teaching videos on photography and seeing how he creates content for what he loves is endlessly inspiring. Creation's an inherently vulnerable activity as you're putting a part of yourself out there for everyone to see. Tell me someone either in real life, from the community or even a pet who always has your back and supports you in your efforts
1: the person i would probably say is my partner she has been around since way before i even started content creation and whenever i've got prog she's always very understanding she doesn't make me do anything for the week straight of 16 hour days she'll be there to support me she'll be a mod in my chat she's a content creator herself and like whenever i have something big coming or for example a prog cycle she'll stop what she's doing okay i'm not streaming that week just to help me out it's insane the amount of support she gives me so that i can do the stuff that i want to do and i'm always really appreciative of it i don't think that i would be in a position that i am now and i don't think that i would grow half as much as i did if it wasn't for her being there and she's also essentially the main character of my stream as well so
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's definitely helpful finally with prog over and tons of time until the next tier tell me what you're most excited about creating next
1: So patch 6.35 just came out and with it came the new Deep Dungeon. If you'd asked me this two years ago, I probably would have heard this answer and called myself a moron, but I actually really like Deep Dungeon now. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed Eureka Orthos and I want to solo the new Eureka Orthos and make a really cool video about it. That's my plan for the next month or so of my free time. I'm going to make a really good video about it when I clear.
0: For me, this interview podcast is without question what I get most excited about doing and I want to thank you so much for coming on today to talk. I can't do this show without people to interview, and I'm always so grateful for every single person who agrees to come hang out and discuss the game. I certainly talk a lot, but the final word's yours. Tell everyone where they can find you and any parting thoughts.
1: I stream on Twitch four or five days a week on twitch.tv forward slash Rinbanana. I've also got a YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Rinbanana. I make guides. Hopefully they're helpful. If they're useful to you, I'm very appreciative of it being useful to you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. No, anytime. I had a lot of fun. Yeah.